Howdy, everyone. Welcome to Narrative Dissonance here on Unsafe Space. This is a show we do every Monday at 2 p.m. I almost didn't know what day we did the show or what day it was. Uh, every Monday uh, at 2 p.m. Pacific, in which we question mainstream narratives. We have a panel of, of guests on to help us talk about how we're being lied to, how we're being misled, all that kind of stuff. I am your host, Carter Laren. Please, you can uh, go to unsafespace.com if you'd like to support us. You can also watch all of our live streams there. Uh, if you don't want to be on another site, you can also find us on Utreon, Rumble, Odyssey. Unfortunately, still here on YouTube. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at underscore unsafe space. And uh, I don't know, like, subscribe, share, do all that stuff. Sharing content really helps. YouTube does not like us, so uh, they do like to uh, suppress our videos. So you're probably not going to see us in your feed, even if you're subscribed, which you should still do. So go ahead and share our content with other people if you can. Um, if you have the cojones to share this content with other people, go ahead and do that. Our next book club is August 14th, and it is, here it is, yeah. this book, Fossil Future by Alex Epstein. It's called Fossil Future, Why Global Human Flourishing Requires More Oil, Coal, and Natural Gas, Not Less. So nothing controversial about this book. Uh, plenty of time. It looks big. But it, I think it's a relatively easy read. Uh, so you got plenty of time to get on that by August 14th. Let's see. Uh, I don't think, actually, Beverly can jump in if I'm wrong. I don't think we have a 451 degrees tomorrow. I don't know if we have a Rebel Civics on Wednesday. But we do have Dangerous Thoughts on Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific. And then Token Minority Report at 4 p.m. on Thursday. I think that's what our schedule is this week. So without further ado, let's get started. First, please welcome Adam Coleman. Adam's the author of Black Victim to Black Victor. Actually, wait, I think I have that. I do. Here it is. Black Victim to Black Victor, identifying, identifying the ideologies, behavioral patterns, and cultural norms that encourage a victimhood complex. He's an op-ed writer, public speaker, and founder of Wrong Speak Publishing. You can follow him on Twitter at wrong underscore speak. Adam, welcome. Hey. <laughs> a little bit of a delay. How are you doing? Thanks for joining. My pleasure. <laughs> I just have a quick question, Adam. Yes. Uh, did this did this make it to Ibram X. Kendi's must-read list yet? <laughs> uh, more like the must-burn. Um... <laughs> <laughs> oh, he has a burn list. Of course. Yeah, he has, I'm sure he has a burn list. Um, no. I, and and if, if it is on the burn list, I, I'd be proud, actually. <laughs> You'd be proud. Okay. Good. Yeah. Uh, well, welcome. Welcome. Um, Thank you. And our, sec our second panelist today is Juliet. Uh, I don't. I never know whether I should say your last name, Juliet. So I'm going to leave it out right now, and you can tell us later. You may know her from her work on Gab, where she exposes what Yuri Bezmenov called ideological subversion in Western civilization, or you may know her from her frequent appearances on the Independence Gang podcast. Or here, you can follow her on Gab at Truthseeker8487. Nice and easy to remember. Juliet, welcome. Hello. <laughs> You're so good at picking usernames. <laughs> I, I must say. <laughs> I've had to go through quite a few of them. I don't know why. Oh, do you get banned a lot? Um, sometimes. Yeah. Oh, okay. I, I say the things uh, you're not allowed to say, I guess. Oh. Like wrong speaking. Yeah. <laughs> my uh my daughter just got a she's going into eighth grade. And she just was given her summer reading list. Like she had to choose books from her list. 
and most of them she'd read already. Uh, but one of them she hadn't read was 1984. Nice. And uh, she was like, should I read this? And they said, oh, it's very advanced. It's very difficult for this age group. And I was like, I don't think it's that hard. Um, so go ahead. And uh, she's liking it so far. But um, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see how that goes. That book gave me nightmares. The the, the rats gave me nightmares. Like, I don't remember how old I was when I read it. But like the, the, the rats in the cage thing. Oh, man. Oh. All right. Wrong speak made me think of that. All right. <laughs> So, so, welcome to both of you. Maybe, uh, maybe Adam, we'll start with you. Uh, what, what do you think is the most important story about which mainstream media has been misleading us this past week? If you had to say, uh, I don't know about misleading, but it's kind of like a blip. Uh, I would say Biden saying that we're going to stay in war or we're going to be involved in the conflict in Ukraine. Uh, as long as possible like <laughs> i'm like oh, he, he said that as long as possible i missed this yeah yeah i mean i'm i'm paraphrasing but basically like until until we win like that's basically it and i'm like okay that i think that should be something that we talk a little bit more about that we're going to be in this maybe possibly endless conflict that happens in in ukraine or the fact that there seems to be no advocacy for peace. Um, I remember, and I actually had the article up not so long ago, uh, Boris Johnson basically saying like, don't, <laughs> don't negotiate any peace deals. And I'm just like, why would they say that? Oh, because they want more. They want more conflict. Yeah, well, I don't think you understand, Adam. You can't sell missiles if you don't have a war. I don't do, That's like, right. what's so hard about that? <laughs> I keep forgetting about that. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Crystal City will go bankrupt if we don't have war. We need, <laughs> we need, we need war, and you know, supporting Nazis in Ukraine against a dictator in Russia is a great kind of thing because both sides are horrible, and you can just kind of do it forever. Yeah, I mean, I mean, is he really uh, a dictator? I mean, he only just got rid of everybody who disagrees with them within <laughs> the government. <laughs> he only uh, I mean, he I don't know. reporters in jail. Other than that, it's very free. Other than that. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's that's the one thing that I sticks out to me. I actually want to write something about it soon, but uh, it sticks out to me like, to what end are we going to take this on? I have so many questions as far as why is it our problem? Um, mm. like there is a humanitarian aspect to it. And I understand, and I don't necessarily disagree with that, but at, at the same time, like, it's like Ukraine has a conflict. What's the United States going to do? And I'm thinking, what the fuck should we do? Like, why, why is it our issue? Why, <laughs> you know, at least we don't necessarily have boots on the ground, but it's, it's almost as bad that we're just funneling money to one of the most corrupt countries in Europe or if not the most uh, corrupt countries in Europe, and with no oversight as well, admittingly, no oversight as to where this money goes and, and just blanket sending weapons. So I don't want to take too much time. But yeah, that's that's the one thing that I would No, say. I think you bring, up, you bring up a good point. I mean, we haven't talked about Ukraine in a while on this show because, frankly, it kind of has fallen into the background, which I think is the intent, right? Yeah. We're supposed to get all 
jacked up about it early on so we could be rah, 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 and put Ukraine flags in our Twitter profiles and and agree to spend billions of dollars and send it to Ukraine. Um, but, you know, more recently, since it's been approved, they just kind of want it to, the war machine can kind of operate without our involvement and notice for a while. And so they don't need to keep throwing it. Plus, you know, the January 6th ice capades are going on. So, um, or have been for a while. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. it, it is a good question. Why is it in our interest? And and the, from what I hear from the hawkish side, uh, and this includes, the you know, the Republicans like Bill Kristol, but also, um, mm-hmm. you know, the the leftists. Well, I won't say the leftists, whatever, the, the other side who are, are supporting it. Um, they make this argument that Putin is so horrible and it's unjust and we have to stop him and and yada, yada, yada. And, you know, it's hard to argue that Putin's not bad. Sure. But meanwhile, we've been killing, we've been supporting the death of people in Yemen for a while and no one seems to care, right? It's it's uh, it's certainly, we certainly picked the wars that we want to get involved in. Um, and th- and we were lied to about it. There was this, like, it's not going to be a Vietnam, it's not going to be a quagmire, blah, 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 and now it's kind of fallen yeah. into the background, and maybe we'll be at war for 10 years in Ukraine supporting it, and it will just be... And and it and not having boots on the ground actually means that it's not our lives that are being risks. We're just we're just like funding the death of Ukrainians and Russians so they can keep, you know, we're we're, we're funding the the meat grinder for people who aren't even us. Yeah, I mean, you're right about that. You know, I was I was thinking, actually, I think earlier today about this. Like the idea of good guys and bad guys in foreign policy, I just kind of come to the conclusion that there's no such thing as any good guy in foreign policy. It's just a matter of uh, perspective as far as who's in what interest to do what. Um, you know, you can make an argument that the United States is the bad guy in many situations, and, and maybe some situations we're the good guy. Um, but I think that also leaves the room to say that maybe Putin isn't always the bad guy. Maybe Putin is just acting within his interests and him being a good guy in Russia makes him a bad guy for us. Like it's just all about perspective, but I don't think there's anybody, there's no angel on, on the, you know, foreign policy world, especially when it talks to war and conflict, it's, it's rare. Um, and I don't, and I've never saw this entire conflict as, you know, the poor innocent Ukraine, you know, the people, yeah, but not the government. Sure. You know. Yeah, pe- people have a hard time separating governments from the people, right? I mean, our government, yeah. I mean, the three of us, I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say things happen in Washington that the three of us might not want to represent our views. Yes, uh-huh. exactly. <laughs> on occasion, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, and if someone like Putin is a dictator as they're claiming, right, or whatever, if he, if he is a strong man, well, then all the more so for the Russians who are caught in the middle of this, who, who don't really have a say. Um, and, of course, yeah. I feel bad for the Ukrainians. I mean, who wouldn't feel bad for the Ukrainians? But you, I think you're right. There's a, It's, you know, the other thing is you're not allowed to... The nuance that you're bringing up is, is kind of prohibited from mainstream discussions because if you try and bring up a nuance like well let's look at this from putin's perspective you mm-hmm. get shut down immediately how dare you putin is a crazy man and you can't look at anything from his perspective and he's evil and you must be on the side of satan if you want to look at it from putin's perspective it's like well you know th- there are 
we can still, even if that's all true, it's good to understand his perspective. Can we have that conversation? And typically yeah. the answer is no. Um, but, you know, there's a lot but of you know what? why. Go ahead. I'm sorry to cut you off. Uh, it's starting to change. Uh, NPR finally put out an article saying, hey, maybe Zelensky is corrupt. <laughs> oh, <laughs> really? Yeah, they, they just put it out. I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but like they're basically questioning uh, the level of corruption within Ukraine and they're starting to turn. Um, so to I'm me, I'm find this and share it here. Keep yeah, going. yeah. I just thought it was interesting because it reminds me of COVID, where like all of us were questioning <laughs> everything and question everything for months and months and months. And then finally, one day, someone says, Hey, maybe lockdowns aren't good. And then it was like just the, the turn. It was like within a week, everybody just shifted. The mainstream media was like, yeah, I think we should. Uh, I don't think the lockdowns are working. It's like we've been screaming this for months. And then they say the <laughs> same exact thing <laughs> that we've been saying yeah. for months as to why they're not effective. Um, so it's so strange to me. As soon as there, there's like some sort of impetus for it. And so like for COVID, it was like, uh, actually, it was basically when Joe Biden got elected. Like when it became official, it was like a week huh. later. I'm sure that's a coincidence, Adam. It's just coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I'm wondering, I'm still trying to figure out what's the impetus of this? Why all of a sudden are they pointing out that he's corrupt during this conflict? And I wonder if it's coming to a point where it's like Ukraine's not going to win this or going to come anywhere close to winning this without foreign involvement, like boots in the ground. And I always thought it's a pipe dream to think that you could just throw billions of dollars at a force and hope that they do something. It kind of reminds me of Afghanistan, uh, that video where they had like all these military officials in there and they can't teach them how to do jumping jacks. <laughs> like no matter how much money and time and effort, you can't even get them coordinated physically. And yet you expect these people to withstand like fighting and battling people. Uh, it's just, it reminds me of something like that. And we're just throwing yeah. money at a problem. And yeah, they were never going to win. I think you're asking a really good question, right? Because with COVID, I think it's maybe obvious. I, rem I remember in early 2020, the two things I was getting, well, at least two things that I would get pushback from. And anyone who said this is not just, I'm not unique, but anyone who said these things like, Hey, you know, there's a huge economic cost to these lockdowns. Uh, it's going to destroy small businesses all across America. This is really, really bad. Can't have that discussion because suddenly you were, you know, selling out grandma. How could you possibly <laughs> worry about money when grandma's going to die? You cold hearted capitalist pig, right? How dare you have that discussion? So you couldn't say that. And you also couldn't say, hey, you know, maybe keeping kids uh, masked up uh, is not healthy for them. Like maybe the, this paranoid kind of mask stuff and all this, the school uh, closures is maybe not good for children's psychology. Maybe there's some negative effects of this. Maybe the masks aren't as effective as, you know, because what we're being told is they're perfectly effective and awesome in every way. And maybe that's not <laughs> a super scientific statement. Uh, so maybe there's nuance there. No, you couldn't talk about any of that. And you're right. Shortly after Biden was elected, suddenly, gee, 
gee, you know what, everyone, the lockdowns might have, there might be an economic impact that's, uh, <laughs> and of course, you know, they would, hey, it's disproportionately hurting, you know, this segment or that. It's like, yeah, of, of course it is. And now you saw, <laughs> then you saw also articles like, hey, you know, uh, the the kids who grew up masked, it, it seems like there's some psychological repercussions here that uh, who'd have known? We could <laughs> never have known, but suddenly we found out and, uh, you know, and now they're on to this Ukraine thing. Tell me, what do you think it's because they think the war is going to end badly, that it's going to go on forever? Why are they? What's your theory about why they're suddenly throwing Zelensky under the bus? Unless they want to blame him for not making advancements that they think should be made. Um, I don't know. I, I almost feel like I haven't fully thought this all, all the way through, so I'm kind of like, thinking on the fly but they they put him up as like this hero figure but i think a lot of times when they do that in a very short period of time it's to make them a tragic hero figure oh, right so they're going to somehow find some way of saying that he's corrupt uh he needs to be removed violently or through political means i don't i have no idea but i think it's starting to pivot to show that Zelensky, who more than likely is corrupt. There's some, I, I was highly questioning the character of Zelensky and, and everything about like his aura that everybody started, including people on the right, who started falling in love with Zelensky because basically he wore fatigues. <laughs> that was basically right. it. Right. He wore and fatigues like, and he was a regular kind of guy. And yeah. Yes. Except he wasn't. He wasn't a regular kind of guy. He was a Hollywood guy, or right. in their terms, Hollywood kind of guy. Like he, he was famous and, and relatively wealthy. But the the image of having the president fighting in arms with the people for a photo op, basically. And then after that, he's all over the place meeting celebrities. And and I thought to myself, the audacity for him to fly all the way to America and demand Congress give him money. I was like. I don't think I've ever seen that before. I don't think I've ever seen a, a, a foreign leader come in and basically demand them to give them money or else they're going, everybody's going to die. And then they're like, we got to do everything possible to give them money now. <laughs> and I was like, just none of this makes any sense. Um, yeah. Also, you, you mentioned something before about uh, giving them money now that they have the money. The one thing I noticed is there was outrage over the, I think it was 40 billion. Uh, mm -hmm. There's like a $40 billion package that went out. That, that had a lot of headlines and people focused on it, but there wasn't a lot of headlines once they gave out 10 billion. <laughs> They're like, oh, we're gonna give another 10 billion for arms. Right. <laughs> like, cause the, the, oh, that's not as bad as the 40 billion, it's 10 billion. Right, they, they set your expectation <laughs> and then yeah, yeah, if they if they opened with ten, would all been pissed. But they opened with forty, and then we're oh, only ten. Yeah, yeah, that's a win. That's how conservatives have been doing politics for my entire life, right? That the left opens with pre pure communism, and then they back <laughs> off to like twenty five percent of communism, and conservatives are like, yeah, we won. <laughs> like, well, you know that. Yeah, not really a win, buddy. Uh, yeah, that's one thing I noticed. You're yeah, you're I reminding mean me. Sorry, go ahead, Juliet. Okay, go yeah, ahead. I'm. I was just gonna add on to the whole like. There's this weird Hollywood aspect to this. That, like, didn't he call into the Oscars or something? Like, I don't remember what <laughs> award he? show it was. I he, don't like, watch the award shows. Did he? He did like a vert. Like he called in like a Zoom call and they played it and for all the celebrities. Like they, well, 
are you asking for donations from them? I don't understand. It was like very propaganda. And then um, Bono playing a concert in the subway in Ukraine and all these foreign When Bono's involved, you know, something's (laughs) wrong. And then we're sending like, you know, heads of state to go visit him in an active war zone. Like just none of that adds up. Was whenever do we send really important political figures into an active war zone to shake hands with somebody for a photo right. op? Yeah. Like just so Stiller. much. <laughs> where also where are the embedded like press with you know combat troops or anything? They're always that's a good question. I don't see a lot of embedded press. A balcony at night with the city behind them talking, you know, you nothing. I haven't seen like a single video of a firefight. You know, that's a really I that's a really good point. Actually it's happening in cities, right? Like there should be cell phone footage. Yeah, oh absolutely. That's well, we're being told that's what's going on. (laughs) Something fishy. Something's weird. No, actually, I have an answer for that. Where the, where is the media when it comes to the battling? Malcolm Nance. He put on the fatigues and held the gun, and he went into the woods and fought alongside the Ukrainians. Um, <laughs> that's where our media was. <laughs> and you know what's so funny? It's so funny how, how tribalized uh, certain people are. Because you got to look at that and say, like, this is complete bull. Like, are people <laughs> buying this? And you read through the timeline, you're like, yeah, fight the good fight. Like, just people fully believe that this guy just one day got on a plane, went to Ukraine, put on some fatigues, and he's out there fighting the Russians on his. And I'm like, and that nicely clean fatigue. <laughs> <laughs> like, you guys believe anything, man. Right. Uh, I don't believe that for any. For anything, I don't believe any of that. Yeah, yeah. I, you, were, Adam. Something you said earlier. This is going to sound like it's a non sequitur, but it's not. Something you said earlier reminded me of. Uh, you were talking about like Zelensky saying, like, we need to, you know, give us money now, and like now, or everyone will die. Like, there's this um, urgency, this sense of emergency, and and um, uh, tremendous amount of time pressure that's placed Mm -hmm. on decision-making, right? There's all this pressure to make a decision now. People are dying right now. You don't have time to think about it. Do it right now. Make the decision. Um, And it reminded me of something that um, when my first daughter, when we were pregnant with my first daughter, which is over 13 years ago now, um, we we had a midwife who was, it was like we were just first time, you know, first time parents, right? So we had a midwife like explain everything that was going to happen and, and one of the things that she said, which which always stuck with me because I think it happens in lots of situations, is she said, look, <clears throat> the doctors are going to make you feel pressure to make decisions about stuff. If something is not you know, perfect, right? The doctors might make you feel pressure. You have to decide this. You have to decide that. Blah, blah, blah. And, they'll, and they'll pressure you. And often they'll be pressuring you into the decision that they want, obviously. Um, and she said, you got to remember uh, – you always have time. They'll make it seem like you don't have time to make a decision, but you always have time to make a decision. You can always stop and make a decision. If you didn't have time and it was really life or death, they wouldn't ask you. 
-hmm. right? <laughs> like if there was really something going on, they wouldn't be consulting you. They would just do it <laughs> because it was actually life or death. If they're asking you, it doesn't matter how much pressure they're putting on you. You have time to stop, tell them to leave the room and think about your answer and think about what you want to do and weigh your, your choices carefully. And I think that's a metaphor for how a lot of this, especially in politics, how a lot of this kind of emergency decision-making gets pushed. We, we are bombarded with images of uh, suffering victims. And then we have someone comments that you have to do this right now. If you don't do it right every moment, you know, there's a baby dying in Ukraine every two seconds. And if you don't do it right now, the evil Russians are going to, it's like every minute you delay, right? So you get, it's this immense amount of, of pressure that's put on you and it's designed to, uh, subvert your rational decision-making process and get your monkey brain activated instead of your rational mind. Um, right. So that you can, you're not actually making rational decisions. You're just reacting in the way that they want you to. No, I, I, I agree with everything you said as far as their tactic to do it. Part of me feels like Zelensky coming to, um, coming to Congress to speak was just uh, par for the course. Like they were going to do it anyways, but they needed an, a, a validating push. Oh, well, he came here and he spoke to us. We got to do something now, you know. Um, so I think that was more of a technicality. He was invited, though, right? I think. He might have been invited. But just the, just the fact that he came there to, to basically get billions of dollars from us to fight a war right. that essentially we have no part in. Like my, and it sounds maybe selfish as an American who's not part of some war going on to say like it's not our business but i think about well why isn't it the eu's business they're right next door you know and i've heard people yep. say oh they're giving a little bit of money but why are we the primary financiers of this entire conflict oh is it because it's our proxy war is it because we're funneling money to corrupt actors that benefit maybe people within our government is that the case so you know, I have so many questions when it comes to this entire thing, but especially why is the EU, this big conglomerate that, you know, acts all high and mighty that they, they do the right thing all the time. Well, why aren't they in there fighting alongside the U Ukrainians? Why aren't they the ones funneling the money? Why aren't they, they, they have more of an actual interest than we do. Well, it has nothing to do with uh, crack pipes and hookers. <laughs> um, I just want you to know yeah. that it's, it's irrelevant. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, so I, the other thing that I, I, it seems like an honest question that should be asked, which I, I haven't seen the mainstream media or even like, I mean, maybe Fox is one, but I don't think so. I haven't seen even people on the right. Why isn't, why aren't many people saying, wait a minute, why are, why do we even have NATO? Like NATO was, NATO was because of the Soviet Union. They dissolved. There's plenty of countries with with political systems that we don't necessarily approve of, or that we think are flawed in some way. With leaders, and we have relations with them. We don't micromanage the internal politics of it. Well, the CIA might want to, but we don't micromanage the internal politics of of everyone. Why is Russia? so much different why didn't we say hey the cold war's over we don't need nato anymore we don't have to have a gang uh devoted to 
uh, responding to Russia. In fact, hey, Russia, why don't you join a mutual protection? Why don't we just agree that if there's all of us will 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 agree that there is if there's an aggressor, we'll we'll all jump in against the aggressor. Um, and my understanding is Russia wanted to join. They asked about joining NATO. Uh, and I didn't they know were that. told no. Right. I, I, I mean, the real question I have is what is the UN even for? Like, why, why does it exist? They don't do anything. Like, why? Like, they're the, that's what the purpose of the UN should be. If there's an aggressor, then take it to the UN and we, as a right. world, decide how to deal with it. And then we donate some troops to the peacekeeping mission, whatever. But instead, it's always us and NATO. But, I mean, in that aspect, I can't blame Putin for getting mad about NATO expanding and stuff because... He really wasn't messing with NATO. And now NATO's posturing like they're ready to fight. You know, it's it's yeah. that classic back and forth thing where it's just amping up to who knows what comes next. But we're putting him in a worse position, honestly, by beefing up NATO right now. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Russia has a legacy. I mean... I, my understanding is that culturally Russia is much more comfortable with like a strong man leading them. Like mm -hmm. that's just culturally they're, they're, you know, they're okay with that, but they also have a history of being invaded from the West um, and people marching to Moscow. And so they are quite concerned about potential incursions. And, you know, here you've got this organization that's explicitly anti-Russian, which is what NATO is. Uh, kind of sitting on the borders, um, and they're saying, "Hey, don't I don't want Ukraine to join? Ukraine, there was no intention of Ukraine joining. It would have been really easy. The only thing we we would have lost is maybe lost some face by admitting, like, okay, they'll never join. But that was it. Just losing a little bit of face, you could have said, sure, they're not going to join. Don't worry about it. But we didn't. We didn't. And whether or not that was Putin's reason, it certainly was his pretext." Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we don't, we help to make a decision, uh, essentially. Yeah. You know, um, yeah, I just, I think it's good that we have these questions to ask. And, and maybe there are logical answers to them uh, that we're just unaware of. But I'm always suspicious of people who try to silence you from asking questions. Like, I'm not trying to assert that Russia's the, the good guy or anything like that, but why Why can't I ask these questions? Like, mm -hmm. if someone was to explain to me that an adversarial group is working with a bordering country of mine and putting weapons along their border, I'd be like, yeah, I think I'd be concerned too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. You know, right. You know, whether invasion is the right answer is a different story, but I think that might be a valid concern. Um, you know, you had mentioned like how come, how come we didn't uh, work together with Russia, you know, decades ago after after it dissolved, and I think about China, you know, the whole thing with us going into Vietnam it was basically, I guess, from my understanding, it's kind of like a proxy uh, situation with China being involved as well and supplying mm -hmm. supplying goods to uh, North Vietnam, uh, weapons to North Vietnam, but afterwards they wanted to trade with us. And so it sounds like anyone that actually wants to engage in trade with us, they're a-okay with us. 
It doesn't matter anything else that they're doing with hey, like, ah, that's that's your business and your borders. We're 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 yeah. okay with that. As long as you trade with us, as long as you use our banks or you use our goods, um, then we're perfectly fine with that. And so I think Russia has always been seen as adversarial uh, as far as partnership and trade, um, and especially resources. You know, they have a ton of oil, and we started building up, uh, you know, Middle East interests of oil. <laughs> That's counter interests of ours. So yeah. I think I think all of this comes down to resources, um, and the and the end. Yeah, it could yeah. be. It could be. I mean, and truthfully, I think uh, Russia and China combined, if they were to ally, and I know uh, there's, I know that in the Chinese Communist Party, they're not a lot of the, a lot of the the higher ups there are not super keen on on an alliance. There, some of them are mad at Xi for his soft stance on Russia, but. Um, mm -hmm. So, so maybe that an alliance it wouldn't happen. But, I mean, the if you want to talk about a way to take out the petrodollar, a Russian-Chinese alliance on currency would do it, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so, I mean, I, I, there is kind of a real threat there. But I think you're right. I, just being able to ask the questions. I mean, it's like COVID, right? COVID came along and it wasn't that I didn't believe everything. It was that like, I wasn't allowed to ask questions and that's what made me not the same with the election. Actually the, the 2020 election is a better example to me. I don't look, I've seen conflicting stuff. Like I, I don't, I'm not even going to say I think it was stolen or not. So like, I don't have a, a strong opinion because I think it's complex and there's a lot of stuff there. And sometimes I, I see claims and then it turns out they're, they're not very well researched and actually, it wasn't a problem when someone says it was a problem, all that kind of stuff. So I'm not going to make a statement, yeah. but I will say this. When you're not allowed to ask, that says all I need to know. Uh -huh. right? yeah. When you're not allowed to question it and the answer is it was the most secure election ever. And how dare you question it? And don't don't question any of this. It's like, well, that's really all I need to know about this. Um, and it's it's the same with with this situation. It's like, well, Putin bad, Ukraine awesome. That's all you need to know. Stop asking questions. Uh, yeah. But so. now it seems like you can ask some questions. Uh, <laughs> a little for bit. For what reason? Well, here's, the, here's that article yeah. that you brought up. Is this the one you're thinking of? Uh, yes. Yes, that's it. Yeah. Corruption, corruption concerns involving Ukraine are revived as the war with Russia drags on. <laughs> this is an AP revived. article. There, there's the man. <laughs> Revived from whom? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky's dismissal of senior <laughs> officials is casting an inconvenient light on an issue that the Biden administration has largely ignored since the outbreak of war with Russia. Ukraine's history of rampant corruption and shaky governance. Wow. All right. We don't have to read the whole article, but yeah. That's that's interesting. <laughs> uh, those issues which date back de decades and were not an insignificant part of the former President Donald Trump's first impeachment had largely pushed back to the back burner in the immediate run-up. How come they're not mentioning... Uh, is Hunter in here at all? 
Uh, I don't. Oh, here we go. Yeah. Oh. Allegations and interactions. He sought derogatory information. <laughs> oh, okay. Then, that's it. The only reference is that the damn Trumpies. <laughs> of course. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that is uh, maybe the CIA wants. Maybe they feel left out and they want something to do. So they're like, hey, how about how about regime change? We can use the war <laughs> as an excuse for regime change. We have a whole plan. I know it didn't work out well in 2014, but we can do it again this time, guys. It's better. Uh. I mean, at this point, think about this. I think this is like a genius idea, guys. So instead of questioning things and pointing out, you know, rational things that people should be looking at or talking about, we should just like brand ourselves as psychics and be like, in six months, we're going to find out <laughs> Ukraine is really corrupt. Yeah. Right? Like in six months, we'll find out, you know, like we would make millions. <laughs> I know. Yeah, A year ago, we could have been like, behind. small businesses will suffer immensely. <laughs> There'll be a transfer of wealth to large corporations in the tech sector. <laughs> exactly. Ooh. When you make an argument, they don't listen. But yeah, maybe if we just like it was a divine, like <laughs> we reached the nether world and we're they're channeling future information. Maybe they don't listen. My prediction That's is sad. <laughs> my prediction is in three months, uh, there will be notable people calling for the removal of Zelensky. That's Ooh, my prediction. I like it. Wait, who will call for the removal? Just some, someone or maybe a, a number of notable people, whether it's in government, uh, oh, it could I even see. become popular narrative that Zelensky is corrupt and he should go. A blue check mark. We'll start <laughs> yeah. tweeting it. Yeah. There you go. That's even better. Yeah. Blue checks who like suddenly realize that their hero is actually a villain um, and he needs to go all of a sudden. So... Yeah. And they knew it all along. They were always really just about the Ukrainian people. Oh, uh, that's right. And, that's uh, right. They were never really fooled. Right. To speak I, I saw it from day one. I knew it ever since I saw him wear that green shirt and he wasn't yeah. holding the gun right. <laughs> that's right. And then they will say CIA pigeon number one is the best candidate for presidency. <laughs> Who will this stooge CIA stooge A is the is the candidate that I've always liked better. We should figure out who that is. Our predictions can be more accurate. We should. If anyone has an in at the CIA, tell us who they're planning. Yeah, we, we should. Uh, we should pick uh, a future leader like how we picked the um, after we took over Afghanistan, the new president of Afghanistan. <laughs> I was like, who the hell is this guy? And he's like, oh, he's worked at the U.S. for decades and done stuff. Oh, yeah. I was like, oh, okay, he's the, the oh, president. What do you know? Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Maybe Hunter can recommend who the next president should be. He probably knows. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. He's like that guy Igor. Which one? Yeah. I don't know. You know <laughs> Igor, guy. you know, Igor. <laughs> oh man. All right. Well, um Juliet, what do, what do you think? What do you think is a, a story we should be paying attention to? Okay. Um, there are 
there's always so many to choose from, but this time I, I think that the like economic outlook report is coming out in the next couple days or something. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, uh, what's her name? Janet Yellen has been reassuring us that it's not going to be that bad. It's not a recession because we added a lot of jobs in the month of June. <laughs> and so that's a good, they're hiring, right? So that's a good thing. And it just drove me up the wall because first of all, lots of college students get summer jobs. So a lot of those jobs are probably not going to still be there come September. Um, and I mean, anecdotally, but I personally know at least five people that have gone out and gotten a second job recently, just because the cost of living is getting so high that you need it. So they're pretending yep. it's a good thing, but really it's probably the exact opposite of that. It's probably a lot of people getting second jobs, switching careers, that kind of thing. I haven't looked, but... Uh... I guess it's important for people to understand, right, that uh, jobs data. So I, I, I don't know about this particular jobs report, but jobs data does count part-time jobs. So mm -hmm. um, if you went from having a good full-time job to losing that job and having to pick up some part-time work, you might end up with two part-time jobs, and the jobs number will go up if that happens. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, yeah, I'm glad you brought this up because, okay, be, be first, before we even get into this, it's been my experience. I've been thinking, I was thinking about this this morning. It's been my experience that whenever, not, not everyone is like this, but many people are. Whenever we talk about economics, a lot of people don't feel like it's viscerally important. Like they don't care. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know. I just want your theory before we even get into this because I don't know if it's that they don't care or if they feel powerless. So it doesn't matter. Like if we're going into a recession, there's nothing they can do about it personally anyway. So they don't want to hear about it or don't care about it. Or is it, they just don't see the connection between uh, economic, like macroeconomic problems and their own personal lives. Uh, Juliet, you can go first. <laughs> um, <laughs> I would, you know, I think it could be partially like the, I mean, education just people really don't understand what any of that means to them yeah um or you know because it's all it's such a large scale thing that and nobody ever really breaks it down for the individual family what does this mean for you and your life so it could be that um I mean, I definitely, people, I even tend to check out when it comes to the economy because it just seems like some, like, concept I don't quite grasp. But yep. to, they never taught it to us. So I think they like it that way. I think it's better in general if the general population doesn't truly understand it well enough to read yeah. the science Yeah, well, that's themselves. certainly true. Yeah. 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 Um, what do you think, Adam? I, I would say that I think for the average person, economics is more of a feel than a, than a number, right? So they can come out with like, oh, we added 100,000 jobs. And, and people are like, yeah, but I don't feel like the economy is doing well because, <laughs> you know, of my personal experience, of my friend's experience or whatever it may be, it's a general feeling within within the environment. So like I remember 
complete optimism about the economy before COVID when Trump was in office. Um, mm -hmm. I worked for uh, a staffing agency. And so they, they had lots of jobs and they were hiring people and they, they were trying to keep up with the jobs, right? So I got to see it in one aspect as well, not just through like personal, but also from a business aspect where business was booming, one of their best years, everything was going great, lots of jobs. Um, they were having trouble filling the jobs. That's how many jobs were becoming available. So, you know, it's definitely a feeling. Uh, I think that people kind of see it. Um, and obviously like people are selfish, like we're naturally selfish. You know, if things are going wonderful for me and maybe the immediate people around me, you're kind of like, I think generally everything is fine. Um, and then maybe you'll be like, oh, they're, people are exaggerating. You know, I think also that that kind of initial thing where you kind of look immediately around you. And if the media says one thing, but your reality is something different to dismiss it is kind of the problem with having the uh, you know, the financial elite kind of dictating how the world is going because in their world everything is fine because their inner circle they're highly educated highly employed high uh, not highly employed um, high income income earners Every, in their world everything is fine so when we say hey the economy is kind of shit and they're like oh the gas is a little bit expensive yeah buy a Tesla <laughs> right just buy a Quit Tesla moaning. Yeah. It's it's a, <laughs> my it's a driver drives disconnect. Teslas. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, so it's a, it's a complete disconnect, and I think that's yeah. one of the problems with with having our media be part of the, like this upper class that kind of looks down upon people. So when we make mm -hmm. complaints, maybe valid complaints about like, hey, I don't feel like things are going well, uh, they're like, oh, Trumper. Calm down. Everything's fine. So, yeah. yeah, I think that's the general view. That's kind of how I see how people see the economy. Mm -hmm. No, I think you're I think you're probably right. Uh, well, I think you're both probably right, because I don't know if so I, first I just want to read. It's not a super chat, but I like Dion is uh, she is like on it with quotes always. Uh, and this is just a really good one. It's a Mark Twain quote. And it's quote and it says figures don't lie, but liars figure. <laughs> yes yes they do um you know i i don't know if a lot of people realize this but economics as a field of study was really invented by the american progressives in the late 19th century um so it was um when you were talking about economics it was really just like business owners would like talk about what they were doing and like there wasn't this se like separate field of study called economics it wasn't mm -hmm. a it wasn't a separate thing and and it became a separate thing um, I think partly because of the progressive agenda, which was to build an administrative state where everything was centrally managed and, and that includes money. And when you start centrally managed money, suddenly, uh, you know, the, the most powerful thing you can manage in an economy is money. Yeah. Um, yeah. right. In an entire industry, like the entire society, you control the money, you know, you basically control everything. So, um, and it wasn't until, you know, it wasn't until like 1913 that we get the Federal Reserve. And then um, and then obviously we slowly go off the gold standard uh, until until Nixon uh, severed that, I think, in 67 or 70 or something like that. I don't remember. Um, but I think a lot of people what they've done is they've made it so complex. Right. Because 
it's not necessarily complex from a fundamental perspective. Um, it's like if you just start with a blank slate free market, it's like, okay, well, um, there's, there is, I mean, there is complexity there. I'm not saying there's not complexity, but um, people understand supply and demand curves and like there's, there's not, you can kind of explain it and, and it's somewhat, I wouldn't say completely predictable, but it's, it's somewhat understandable. Mm -hmm. um, and there's freedoms to, to move and to adapt relatively quickly. But when you, when you get into the system that we have now, it is, it is like you're saying, Adam, manipulated by a small group of people at the top, right? So if you're in, if you're a central banker, um, or you're part of the, well, if you're part of the Fed or your central banker, or whatever, you're manipulating uh, the economy using the tools that you have available, and you do get you do get a trickle down effect, not in the way Reagan talked about it, but you get a the first people to get new issued new money, for example, are the upper class, the elites, the people on Wall Street. By the time it gets down to you, inflation has hit, and you're paying more uh, mm -hmm. for bread at the store anyway. By the time that money you know, gets into your pocket. So it, it is and and, and it's kind of this Ponzi scheme where who knows how long this Ponzi scheme will last. Like you've got people, I, I love Peter Schiff, who's constantly, but he's constantly predicting, he called the economic crisis, the mortgage crisis correctly, mm -hmm. but he's also like been saying the dollar is going to collapse. Eventually the dollar is going to collapse. And, and people accuse him of being a broken clock and they're like, okay, well, you know, you'll be right sometimes. Right. <laughs> And he's not wrong. All of the fundamentals that he cites are correct, but it's the prediction of when, because so much of it is psychology. Like, when will the psychology flip? When will the creditors recognize that this is going to fall apart? When will it be too much for the system to bear? And you've got these manipulators at the top who are basically, uh, you know, you're at a party and you're high on cocaine and they're basically trying to like, can we give you more cane, cocaine cane? Can we give you more cocaine? You get tired. Like, here's, here's some more coke. Here's some more coke. And like, Eventually that won't work, but how many lines of Coke you can do and how often you can get tired mm -hmm. until and, and keep taking Coke until your heart explodes, it's hard to predict. And we don't really, I think it's, re it's really difficult for people to know. Um, but the recession stuff here, here's what I want to show. The recession stuff, the White House started doing this, which you know is a problem. <laughs> hey, what is a recession after <laughs> all? Oh, <laughs> yeah. So, oh, wait, actually, before we even do this, I'm going to read. I won't show this because it is a pain in the ass to show multiple screens. But here's the definition. If you just search, you can even use Google. Just search on Google for recession. And the, it pops up right away. And it says a period of temporary economic decline during which trade and industrial activity are reduced, generally identified by a fall in GDP in two successive quarters. So it's not a strict definition, of course, but generally fall in GDP into successive quarters. So along comes the Biden administration. What is a recession? This is like, what is a woman? What is a recession? <laughs> I don't know. I'm not, I'm not a biologist. Uh, will some maintain, while some maintain that to, while some maintain as if this is like some weird fringe thing, <laughs> Juliet claims that it's two consecutive quarters of falling real GDP. That's what she claims. But you know, that's not official. That's not the way economists. We found some <laughs> economists at Yale who disagree. Um, so basically, this entire, we don't need to read it, but this entire thing is all about how 
well, it's very complex and who's to say what a recession is. And we'll find out later if it was a recession because oh we don't God. really declare it at the time anyway. And it's definitely not, you know, there might be another negative quarter uh, GDP. And definitely that doesn't mean we're in a recession. That's not what that means. So stop blaming Joe Biden. That's that's kind of what this is. Um, so, so what you're saying is they're basically saying, what exactly is a cocaine line? How straight mm-hmm. is one really? I mean, does yes, the length yes. really matter? I don't know. What exactly <laughs> is a heart attack? Uh, You're not having one now. There are many reasons for pain in your left arm and your heart to stop. It might not be a heart attack. Um, yeah. We, we go and if to it our... is a heart attack, it's certainly not Joe Biden's fault. Um, yeah. Actually, unless it is. Unless it's the nine millimeter in which your, your lung explodes. Um <laughs> We'll, we'll go to our cocaine uh, our cocaine expert, Hunter Biden, who will let us know. Yeah, yeah we should ask Hunter. <laughs> <laughs> He'll know. Uh, so here's, here's what I want to share with people, though. Yeah. Because I know people don't want to get into, into complex economics. And it doesn't really matter. Like you're saying, Adam, it doesn't really matter if we're technically in a recession or not. It, it matters how people feel about the economy and what their day-to-day life is like and – you know, if gas is seven bucks a gallon and uh, you can't pay your mortgage or your rent, it doesn't really matter whether Yellen calls it a recession or a, an economic boom. Um, right. It it still sucks. So, mm-hmm. but I just here I just want to I want to share this one. I want to share this thing because hold on for a sec. I, it's just um, you got to zoom out. I think. I think the way to look at economics often is to zoom out and realize the big picture first and then realize, yeah, the timing on what's going to happen here is bad, is, is, is not clear, but understand the predicament we're in generally. And this is not all Biden's fault, by the way. I'm, and I'm not – this is a number of presidents, including Trump, also Biden. This is M1. M1 is basically our money supply. Now – our money supply matters because if let's say we have one pizza to split between the three of us and it's 12 slices, well, we could each theoretically have four slices of pizza. So, you know, that's, that's how, so, so our, our entire exchange is based on like there being 12 slices of pizza. So things would cost, you know, let's say I want, I want to, I want a line of Coke from Juliet. And she's like, well, that's one slice of pizza for a line of Coke. <laughs> right? Now, <laughs> but if, if we suddenly, if we cut that pizza up into a million slices, Juliet's going to be like, well, I'm sorry, but one slice of pizza, it's not one twelfth of everything anymore. It's one a millionth of everything. And so it's a lot more slices of pizza to get your line of Coke, Carter. Right? <laughs> So, and that's what inflation is. Like suddenly I'm spending lots more because each slice of pizza is worth less, right? Okay. So here we are, here we are in our money supply. This is what you can tell. This is, they've been, you know, this is what they call printing money. There's many ways to do it. So it's not actually a printing press, but you know, you can see our money supply is pretty steady. Uh, it grows a little bit. Um, you know, Reagan certainly went into debt, <laughs> you know, some money supply problems, but you know, still, we're down here at what 140 billion dollars total in circulation. 
And, you know, we start to get really bad. We wage some more. We've got some wars in Iraq to fund and blah, 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 and other stuff going on. We start printing money a lot more. So we're pretty bad. I mean, we're already pretty bad right here. We're at 4,000 billion, which is 4 trillion. We're already at 4 trillion by the end of 2019 here. It's pretty bad. That's pretty bad. And people, by the way, I mean, most of my life obviously has lived you know, in this area. And people have been complaining about money printing forever, right? <laughs> people yeah. can say it's, it's unsustainable. They said it, you know, Peter Schiff said it back, you know, I don't know, 2006 or 2005. It's unsustainable. It's unsustainable. It's unsustainable. This is what they're saying. It's unsustainable. It's getting crazy. It's unsustainable. So here we go. The end of 2019, we're at $4 trillion in circulation. And what happened after that? Boom. We are at roughly 20 trillion dollars i mean it's just a hockey it's like a it's like a cliff we just hit a vertical wall we just turned the printing presses on and we're like screw it we are zimbabwe <laughs> like we're just gonna print our way out of everything <sighs> um this i don't know what effect this will have in the next month or year exactly how old but i do know this taking this much cocaine will have consequences I don't know when, I don't know where, but this is not good for your heart, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like we, you've taken a lot of Coke. The Piper's going to, or as they call him, Hunter Biden, he's going <laughs> to come to collect, or you're going to have to pay the Piper someday. You're going to have to pay the Piper. And that's where we are. That's That's our economic situation broadly. Like this is really important. Yeah, there's other things. There's job numbers and GDP and growth. Like all that stuff matters. This I, this is controlling. This is over. This is from four trillion to twenty trillion in the matter of a couple of years. That's insane. Mm -hmm. It's it's a little bit more than a year, basically. That's it. It's insane. It's absolutely insane. And to and to have any economist say this is irrelevant, or to have Yellen not address this, this is the elephant in the room. And I don't hear it being talked about very much. Do you guys hear this being talked about very much? Nope. Um. Other than you and Tim Pool, that's basically it. <laughs> oh, does Tim Pool talk about it? Yeah, he he talks about it often. Oh, um, good. Okay. So, so what you're saying is with that graph that you're showing, I know it says M1 money stock, but that looks like the Putin price hike. Isn't that what that actually is? <laughs> it's all Putin's fault. Adam. Clearly, <laughs> that's gas prices and that the knee and the curve. Is when Putin invaded Ukraine, which actually I don't know if you realize happened in January 2020. Uh, you just we didn't realize it till later. Yeah, that's it's the premonition of the Putin price. Uh, that's price right. Yeah, <laughs> the market anticipated his invasion, and that's what happened. That's right. You know. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I it the whole uh, look, and I'm not I'm not trying to be a doomsday, and I, and I recognize some people are like maybe don't want to hear this because they don't. What can you do about it? And and I I think what you can do is recognize like there are times to play in the stock market and there are times to be conservative. I'm not giving you financial advice, but mm, there's times to buy ammo. Yeah. There's a, there's a huge ammo shortage though, so maybe it's not a, not an easy thing. It's about to do. everything. The shorter. only guy I have you guys seen? Do you guys follow um, Rubini? No. He's one of my favorite uh, – Noriel Rubini is one of my favorite – they call him like Dr. Doom. 
Uh, he's like a more mainstream version of Peter Schiff. Like he's not, I don't think he's an Austrian economist. So he's like, he's got some of the, you know, Keynesian mm. ideas going on, but he's pretty good at analysis. He predicted the, the 2020 or the 2008 recession as well. Um, and the mortgage crisis. And, um, he's been predicting like, first he was saying, Hey, there's going to be a recession. And everyone was like, no, there's not you idiot. And then there, <laughs> the people were like, well, there's going to be a recession, but it's going to be a soft landing. And I was just reading this article by him. If here, I'll, I'll link to it. If people want to, it's called a stagflationary debt crisis looms. He was saying, Hey, uh, it's going to be not a soft landing. It's going to be a hard landing and stop saying it's going to be a soft landing. <laughs> this is a real problem. And as he points out, we have a combination of two things we haven't had in the past, which is a huge debt ratio. We're in like a massive, massive debt to GDP ratio um, and inflation. And those two things usually don't happen together. Well, and stagflation. And those two things don't usually happen together. And so stagflationary debt is like really, really, really bad. And we're just kind of ignoring this. And I think, I think maybe you're right that there's – the people in power in Washington are like, well, everything's fine for me. My portfolio is still good. And, um, you know, the people around me aren't homeless. So I don't know what the problem is. If gas prices are high. Buy a Tesla. Big, you know, shut the hell up. Uh, you know, the third estate can go to hell. Everything's fine. Everything's fine in the states number one and two. So who cares? Um, but. <sighs> I, Can I, I, I really don't think we're, I, I don't, I hate to, I'm not an economist. I hate to make predictions, but I, I if I was going to go, if I was a betting guy, I would be betting with Noriel right now with, with Rubini right now. Mm-hmm. And, and if I can add to the doomsday. Um, <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> so, you know, we have, we have all these issues that are happening and we have this, I want to say within the past few years, we've had this consistent need to run to the federal government for every problem. Um, and, and they've become, especially under the Biden administration, they've become basically complicit with just print until you need to print some more um, with everything. Oh, we'll, we'll chip in here. We'll, we'll add more to this. Uh, we just talked about foreign, foreign conflict. Here's billions of dollars. Take it. No oversight. Um, and, and no, we don't want to pay back. Just have at it. Have fun with, uh, you know, $60 billion. Have good, um, hey, have fun, Hunter. Yeah. yeah. But the other thing, the other thing that's happening is, and this is now starting to be complained about in New York City with Mayor Eric Adams, is the immigration issue. Now what's happening is the immigration issue is leaving the borders, so to speak. Um, I mean, it's always left the borders. People go all over the place. But the crisis at hand at the border is now making its way to northern northern cities, uh, uh, northern mm-hmm. states. And New York City is a great example where people are going there. Um, I remember months ago, there was footage talking about uh, migrants who made it over the border or getting flown over to New York State um, in the middle of the night and then make their way into New York City. Um, so now they're there. And now they're overwhelming all the resources um, or they're contributing to the overwhelming of the resources. We know who knows how bad it was beforehand and because of COVID, yep. but 
They're contributing to overwhelming other resources. And now Eric Adams is complaining about it. So what's the solution? Well, of course, we need federal support. We need more right. money to support the issue that was created by the federal government by basically having a catch and release program that has exacerbated the problem. I, you know, I was watching um, this footage that was taken at the border and they were discussing it. And basically they were like, it was almost like as soon as Biden hit office, it just exploded with the number of people trying to come across the border because they knew what he was going to do. He was going to change the policy and it was going to become mm -hmm. catch and release. When asked how many of these people actually go to to their asylum hearings, he was like virtually none of them because they're already here. And now you have no idea where they are. And it's it's the most asinine thing that I've ever seen as far as trying to have some sort of policy. I know it's not simple. It's not as simple as just change this policy, everything becomes better. But man, this is not this is not the solution, clearly. Um, you have people who have an incentive to come here, they cross the border, you detain them for a period of time, write them a, a permission slip, and off they go, and you have no idea where they're going. It's like the theme of the story is no oversight whatsoever. The federal government has zero oversight, nearly no responsibility for, for anything with all of the power and all of the money. So I think this is going to be the next driving force um, and unfortunately, like the damage has already been done. They could change okay. the policy tomorrow. The people are here. Um, you know, I was listening to one guy. He was saying that basically like at one section, 500 people at least a day come flowing through. And they all become asylum seekers and they disappear into the country. And who knows where they're going? And oh, shit, that's right. I was just looking at something. Now they want to give them government IDs. Now they want to give them government <laughs> IDs so they can get benefits. And it's just like, this right. is, the, what's the point of this? What's the point of us having a border? What's the point of any of this stuff? They can, like, this isn't, and what's crazy is this is one of those things that we can't question unless you're a racist, uh, a xenophobe yeah. or something like that. They're like, no, we can't save the planet. If we try to save the planet, we will destroy our own planet. We will destroy everything. We can't save everybody everybody in every country, we don't have the resources to do so. We barely have enough resources to do for ourselves. And it and it sucks because we get labeled as the richest country in the world. And that we because of that, we have the endless funds and we could just do everything all the time for everything. But I think the, the minor crisis is really going to hurt us um, in regards to our economic prosperity. Um, and maybe finding jobs and even those second jobs that people are trying to take to catch up for the first job that isn't cutting it. Well, guess who's going to take those second jobs too? those low income mm -hmm. second jobs. I've seen it. You know, I, yeah. I'm in New Jersey. I see that we have all these factories. We have Amazon. We have all the all these things that are going on. Uh, manufacturers. They're not hiring people like us. You know, they're, they're hiring illegal immigrants. They're not checking their status. Mm -hmm. Unless, unless like that's just their company policy, what they do, and most of them do not. So, mm -hmm. this is this is going to be the reality. You can't even get a a low income job to supplement the the poor um, income that you're making with your first job. This is one of those topics, though, where there's I think there's a lot of nuance, and you're right. Whenever anyone brings anything up, it's 
well, Adam, you must be a xenophobe racist because you don't <laughs> you want to have a discussion about doing anything about illegal immigration, right? Um, and I guess I think it's I don't know. I part part of me says the U.S. actually we could actually eventually save the world, but to do that we would have but we would have to do it with ideas, and we would have to say, hey, everyone. You know why we're the richest nation in the world? You know how we got here? Individual rights, liberty, mm -hmm. freedom. Here's a system of government, which, you know, it's falling apart for us now. But look, it works for a couple hundred years at least. Why don't you give it a shot? And we can kind of fix it when it falls apart later. But this is how we got here, right? Um, because in, I, I think there, one of the things that I, I can't stand about the left is I think it's condescending to look at people from other countries and think, well, they'll never be able to be rich like us. We have industry and all these things and blah, blah, blah. And like, they can't do that. So we need to give them a handout, right? Rather than all we really need to do is clue them in. Like, hey, we figured some shit out. It turns out if you leave people alone and let them be free and, and like, if you have, you set up this kind of system, people are amazingly creative and smart and, and they, produce a massive amount of wealth like try that out guys try that yeah. out but instead we subsidize everyone which basically keeps them on our teat right it keeps mm -hmm. them down because if you're paying for them then they never have to learn and you've you've kind of enslaved them through uh through a paycheck which is what we do um so that's one of the most frustrating things to me about uh, th this idea of like us being the savior for everyone is like the people that are wanting to do it aren't even really wanting to save everyone. They're just wanting to gut the wealth of the us rather than they, they act like there's a certain amount of wealth in the world and it's, and it's mostly in the us. And so it just needs to be divvied up and like, yeah, maybe our standard of living will go down, but theirs will get row, you know, raise up and, and will be equal. And that's what matters, but that's not true at all. Like the wealth we have is brand new. It was created in the last couple hundred years. Like wealth is created. Let there be more. Teach people how to make pizza. Stop divvying up the pizza you've got. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but very good point. Um, the other thing I want to point out about immigration is this was less of a problem when there wasn't a welfare state and there wasn't massive government infrastructure. Um, when When it was local infrastructure, um, and it wasn't, the federal government wasn't involved and it, it, there wasn't a huge safety net and there wasn't a lot of, uh, you know, government wasn't funding huge universities and, and free education everywhere. Like when it was, when it was much more, as I guess the left would say, like cold hearted, laissez faire, sink or swim, when that was, when that's how it was, you had, you could have a lot more immigration. It could be legal. And a lot of immigrants would choose to go home. I think something like a third of the immigrants at the early and early uh, 20th century turned around and left. They were like, this sucks. I don't like it. <laughs> but the ones that stayed assimilated into the culture and were productive and end up being some of the most productive groups. Right. And uh, we don't really we don't have that either. So now the, the incentives are we've got really perverse incentives for people. Right. I, I don't mind having immigrants come in. I think it could be great if 
there was no downside. If it was like, yeah, you can come in, but you're not getting anything out of it. Like if you want to come in and, and contribute, go ahead. Absolutely. But you don't get free school. You don't get free health care. You don't get subsidized. New York city, by the way, is a sanctuary city. So it's kind of rich. <laughs> That they're like, we're ignoring the federal laws, but hey, can we have some federal money as a result of the crisis we've created by ignoring federal laws, right? Like that is absolutely ridiculous. So I, you know, we've, we've created this perverse incentive structure and I just feel like almost no one wants to talk about why immigration is such a problem. I don't think it would be such a problem if it was, hey, sink or swim, you're welcome to come here, but it's sink or swim, man. Good luck. Well, hey. And I'm sorry, Juliet, you're going to say, no, 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 go ahead. No, I was going to say we have, we have a bad situation here in the States, but I think it's even worse in, uh, in places like the UK and, and throughout Western Europe um, where they have a welfare state without a doubt. Um, and some of the stuff like the UK is doing, it's just like, it's almost like cutting their nose off to spite their face kind of stuff. Um, but it's just, it's, it's ridiculous. Um, and, and this is one of those things too. If you question it, you're a xenophobe, but you're like, how does this make sense? And I think even more so like, like people who are coming from, let's say Central America or even Mexico coming here is not much of a cultural clash, right? Um, right. a lot of them, if they're religious, they're Catholic. So, you know, we're a relatively Christian society. Um, you know, there's, there's not really a, a cultural clash. There's cultural differences, you know, small, but we're a melting pot. Right. And so we've experienced all these different things, places like Europe. Um, there's a cultural clash when it comes to a lot of their migrants coming through, you know, they're either Christian or agnostic. I think they're, you know, they're pretty much, uh, not so not hyper-religious over there, maybe, mm -hmm. Uh, less so than than we are, but you can say that the people who are coming through are overwhelmingly Muslim, and they come from a different culture. So it's not even just the the faith aspect, but it's the cultural environment aspect, their standards of what they see. You know, um, whether women are clothed, show their face. You know, these are different things that they're they may or may not be used to. And I've I've talked to people throughout Europe who have questions, but they're like, you can't ask these things. Or, you know, I've talked to people in, in Germany, they kind of cover it up. You know, they kind of say, well, you know, that wasn't really what happened. Oh, this is exaggerated. And they just kind of move on. Meanwhile, the people there are like, hey, like something's not right here. Um, and part of it is because they created an industry on top of it, but especially like the UK, uh, I wish I could remember the details. But that now, now that the UK is not part of the EU, even more so, the migrants who made it to France, they're just putting them on boats and shipping them across the channel, and the UK is just taking them in in open arms, even more so. So now they're taking them in, and so now they feel obligated to house them, and they give them all these benefits, and they want to house them. But obviously, where are you going to house these people? So I remember... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is this one story. They wanted to house, it was something like uh, almost like 10,000 or maybe less than 10,000 people in a small town. 
that would have been larger than the population that is currently there. Like it would have been, it would have been ridiculous for them to do so. And, and so like the people were outraged for a while. And the last I heard about it was that they delayed the plans to, to do this, but it, it's that like, you have a cultural clash, you have an unsustainable model of housing everybody and taking care of everybody and, and viewing everybody as this unfortunate person who, who's, uh, you know, unfortunate means and they're escaping this and that. They don't know where these people come from a lot of times. How do you, how do you verify, you, you know, Carter, you work for the government. How do you verify that this person is actually from Syria? Like, how do you verify that? You don't, you don't know. And they could say, oh, I don't have my passport. I, I dropped it on my travels. Okay, then what? Yeah, I mean, and of course, because especially if you are fleeing uh, for persecution or some of these war-torn areas, it's entirely possible you would have no papers. Like, right. Right. So, so it's not uncommon. I mean, it, it wouldn't be abnormal. But the the problem is that people know this. They take advantage of this, and and my whole thing is like, okay, we see that overwhelmingly. We're looking at young men who are coming through. So if people are escaping war, are they leaving their wife and children behind? You mean like none of these young men have wife and children? Or are they economic migrants and they're taking advantage of the opportunity to come over here and do like what other people do is send money back or at some point bring them over? Could that possibly be it? And they're just taking advantage of there being a, um, a civil war in Syria from years ago and the, you know, the, code of, the sort of good gracious of the EU to open their arms and causing all this chaos. So, you know, while our issue is bad here, at least we don't have the, the cultural conflict mm -hmm. that they have there or the, we don't have the complete abundance mindset as far as we'll take care of everybody. Um, right. it's, it's not nearly as bad as over there. Let me ask you both a question because, um, You're both Christian, and I'm I'm not Christian, uh, but I I grew up, you know, the kind of we're all kind of culturally grew up with aspects of the, of Christian society. Mm -hmm. If you grew up in America, um, it seems that there's some sort of aspect of our culture in which we are happily willing to accept unearned guilt, that we somehow feel guilty for our position. And that we therefore must uh, wear a hair shirt and beat ourselves or sacrifice something for the, the, the downtrodden. And while, of course, I'm, I mean, no one is against benevolent charity. Like, that, that's, that's fine. Like, uh, you know, but there's a difference between that and this kind of mindset of I'm, we must punish ourselves for our success or we're, we feel guilty about our success. And it seems like as a culture... America generally feels guilty for its success and it's trying to commit slow seppuku uh, <laughs> or, or at least <laughs> sacrifice itself for everyone else. Um, and and is, is it does it come from Christian culture? Is it something else? What do you guys think? Or am I wrong? Completely. That's a tough one. I mean, I definitely we we do. We have this weird cultural obligation to help. I mean, look, Ukraine, 
every major disaster that ever happens, who is the like who is donating at Starbucks? Americans, you know, you don't see Brazil sending millions of dollars of aid when there's a massive earthquake somewhere, right? Like it's a something in us, um, like culturally. I don't. I mean, I, I guess if it goes back to just like the basic principle of charity and like you know definitely there is a christian aspect of like kind of being obligated to like help those that are downtrodden um but i don't know i don't know what that is like i don't know i don't know if you can link it directly to like anything scriptural i don't know what do you think adam i'm like going back and forth in my head because yeah, there are, there are aspects of uh, Christianity that, you know, say like duty to help. But I'm thinking like absent of absent of faith, I think people are more willing to help when their needs are satisfied. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, let's just say most people are have their needs met, you know, shelter, food, water, you know, those needs are met. And so they may be more willing to shell out money to help other people. Um, and so if we are, and I'm going to go back to what I said before, the richest nation in the world, um, that means that our needs are more so met than maybe a lot of other countries. So when a disaster happens, yeah, I can spare $10 for Red Cross, you know, and if a million people do that, then, you know, then you keep going up and up and up. So um, I, I wonder if, yeah, maybe it's partly the Christianity or the culture of Christianity of, of service and helping people. But I think it, it could also be just the idea of if people are are economically fine, they're more willing to release some of their some of their money. But there's a there's a there's a nuance I want to I want to get at here because. um I don't think the problem is that we have too many people who are charitable. I think the problem is that we have people who are charitable with other people's money. Like it's yeah. the problem isn't that there's a bunch of leftists who are wanting to donate to Ukraine voluntarily. That's not a problem. Go ahead. Right. Donate all you mm-hmm. want. In fact, if you want to help uh, Syrian migrants, open your house up. You probably have a spare bedroom in your Hollywood mansion like or two like let go ahead. No one's stopping that. I wouldn't complain about it. Like, if that's what they want to do and they want to use their resources to help people. I mean, maybe illegal immigration I have a problem with, but generally, like if they want to use their, their resources to help people, that's fine. But they, they seem to, it's like, um, they get a, a really good rate of, of return rather than spending 10 bucks to help. They would rather spend 10 bucks to force everyone to spend a hundred bucks. Like, uh, instead, I'll spend ten bucks to get this candidate who's gonna force everyone. God damn it! Like <laughs> that's like that's what they want to do. It's not that they want to help; it's that they want to force everyone else to do it. Or and there's something different. That's not that doesn't seem like Christian charity to me. Yeah, no, that's something different. It almost to me sounds like big philanthropy. You're kind of you're kind of touching upon that a little bit. Um, you know, I, like when I if I go to like. Uh, McDonald's or Walgreens or something, and they say, do you want to donate money? I'm like, no. <laughs> I don't want to donate money to whatever uh, NGO or whatever cause you got going on because I don't trust any of them. Um, I think it's all part of like this big philanthropy scheme. 
uh, where you know five percent of the money that they get actually goes to whatever cause, and who knows how successful that is. But I think I think there is that corporate interest and philanthropy, um, and and outside of like the corporate interest, I think there is an abundance of people who are virtue signaling, who want to appear as gracious and giving, um, but and deep down inside they really don't want to they they'd rather do everything possible to appear that way without actually doing anything substantial to do so um and sometimes like throwing money at a problem is actually like not beneficial whatsoever uh, mm -hmm. it doesn't help anything so like i remember and this is not necessarily about the things we were talking about but the creator one of the creators of friends said that she wants to give money to to help diversity and TV shows or something. So she's like, I'm going to donate a million dollars, right? Well, I mean, I think she's, you know, have hundreds of millions of dollars. So, you know, it's kind of a job, but it's not nothing. But who does she give it to? She gives it to an institution, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> like a higher learning institution. Uh, you know, she's basically giving the money back to the same crowd of people that, that she got the money from in the first place. So you know, it's not who's that actually helping um, or is it just the facade of helping? You know, I think there's a lot of facade of helping these days. I, I think you're right. You can definitely get there's this opportunity to earn virtue credits without actually having to do the thing. Mm -hmm. Right. So mm -hmm. like if I have to give 10 bucks to to, to get an, a little bit of virtue, let's say like, oh, people will think I'm generous because I've donated 10 bucks to whatever. Uh but I can get that same thing by just holding up a sign saying vote for Bernie. Like, well, like that's a better payoff. I don't have to spend the 10 bucks and I can virtue signal where I can tweet about it and be like, oh, he's he cares so much. He wants to support the blah, blah, blah thing. It's like, OK, well, that costs me basically nothing. And and I get the virtue out of it um, or I get the appearance of being virtuous is is a better way is a better way to put it. You're reminding me. I There's one thing I want to <laughs> actually a couple things. Uh Years ago, I went from someone who was like pro charity, like, oh, yeah, you should be donating to like, you know, not not you have to. But like uh, it was a benevolent, fine thing to do to donate to charities. And that was like, you know, like a normie, I guess. Charities are good, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And I remember um, at one point, uh, I forget who I was working for. I think my company had been acquired. I was working for some publicly traded company and they had this thing where like you could choose a charity and they would match your donation or whatever. And so, but they had all this research. You could, they had like this research material so you could make your choice of charity. And I remember researching and I remember becoming horrified, like slowly becoming horrified that forget the stuff that you're talking about where like maybe only 5% of it goes to the cause, which is a problem in and of itself. Every single charity on their list. And these were basically the major charities. Every single one of them, spent a non-zero, but in often cases, a large amount of money uh, lobbying the government for money. And I was like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm against the government giving them money. Like, this is not, I'm for private charity. I don't mm -hmm. want to be taxed more. Why would I give my money to a charity that's going to turn around and hire someone on K Street to get more of my money? What the hell? And like, <laughs> it was this, it blew my mind that so many people were voluntarily giving money to these charities who were turning around 
and try and spending that money to try and get extract more from everyone at gunpoint. Um, it was just unconscionable. And so I came to the conclusion, like I basically stopped donating to charities altogether, except for like, I would find like small ones once in a while. And like, I would, okay, they don't do any lobby. It's like, you know, this tiny charity that does one tiny little thing and they don't do any lobbying and like, okay, I'll do that. Right. But, um, it's really disappointing to see because because it, it's against your values. It's like, OK, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to help people, but I'm not happy to help them oppress me. Right. Well, like, what, are, what am I doing? Like what an invert, like what a way to subvert my own values is to get to give money to a charity that's going to turn around and and use the government to try and get more. Uh, so I, I also want to put a quote up here because i think it's important dion 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 quote the quote queen here dion's got a quote from stefan molyneux and i really like his position on this so i, I want to talk about it it says there's a huge i know stefan molyneux is like definitely wrong think he's bad 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 in every way so we'll probably get banned from twitter <laughs> for mentioning his um shout out to stefan uh here's a huge swath of humanity that has there's a huge swath of humanity that has developed verbal abilities to extract resources from guilt-ridden people. They used to be priests, and now they're leftists. So I I think what's correct about this, uh, I, I think he's spot on. Um, and this ties into something I've been thinking about. We... A couple things. I was talking about the. I've 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 made the analogy in the past about the pre-French Revolution. Like there was the first estate, which is the nobles, or sorry, the priests. The second estate, which was the nobles, and the third estate, which is hey, everyone else. Um, and for for a long time, it was the first and second estate with the king. They were in charge of everything. And one of the the problems, one of the reasons the French Revolution happened is is uh, the king decided to have, call an assembly of all three estates. And the third estate wasn't super happy. Uh, and some <laughs> some priests started jumping ship and then nobles and blah, blah, blah. So um, I think about that often when, when I think about the new system of government, like where those people went. And this is something that Molyneux, I have heard him talk about this, not in terms of uh, French uh, society, but I've heard him talk about this idea that like, the, the there there was a class of people who um, made their made their money or made their living off of uh, being the moral police, good or bad for whatever. Mm -hmm. Like you could say they were good or bad, depending on you know. But they made their money being off the, being the moral police, and they and they always had a good relationship with the king or the the monarch in power because they had to give the moral sanction to the monarch otherwise uh people might rise up against the monarch so that in exchange for the moral sanction they get kind of a monopoly on ethics right like that's the deal right uh you get your monopoly on ethics go preach your thing go go, go preach your thing you can maybe get some taxes out of it or, or sometimes compulsion sometimes just you know, compel people through guilt. And they're very learned. They, these were the, you know, often the priestly class was the, the scholars, right? They were the ones who were educated, who could read, and and they were, they were language experts. And I think this analogy that the language experts have switched to being able to manipulate people into maybe not just 
giving money, but making certain political decisions and kind of uh, creating this. It's a grifter class, really, mm -hmm. is what it is. It's creating <laughs> this. This it's a grifter class of like we have moral superiority. We will we will grant you absolution from all of your sins as a whatever person, or we will uh, we'll we'll let you. Uh, we'll grant you some moral virtue signaling if you do the following things. If you put the Black Lives Matter sign on the front lawn, you get three points of moral virtue. If you add the sign that in this house we believe, blah, 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 and run on sentences, then you get, you know, another three points or whatever, get a Bernie sign or whatever, you know. So th that is an entire class of people. And I don't think he's wrong. I think he's totally right about that. But the other thing, I'm just rambling, and then I want your thoughts on this. The, the other thing that I was thinking is, in the past, one of the reasons a, a person would become king, other than through lineage, right? Like, obviously, you know, you, you, you're you born into it. But not being born into it, the other way you would be rule over people is through force. You would be the best at the use of force. You would be like a great general. You would be um, uh, Genghis Khan, right? You could, like eat meat and not have to eat for days and, and be nomadic and just awesome warriors and just go, you know, uh, rape and pillage and rule. Right. So in order to rule, you had to be an expert in the use of force. I think we've transitioned. Uh, I think we've transitioned into in order to rule. It's actually that first class. It's that priestly grifter class that actually rules because in a democracy or any kind of democratic system, obviously, the guy who's the best cage match fighter or even the best general is not the guy who rules, but the guy who can manipulate you, uh -huh. the guy who, who can manipulate human psychology the best or woman, uh, they end up at the top of the, the dog pile. They end up they end up ruling because it's it's a it's not it's not Genghis Khan who wins. It's the it's the master sophist. It's the master manipulator who is willing to or able to manipulate human psychology and get the crowd behind him. So that's my rant. What are your thoughts? Julia, you want to go first? <laughs> okay. Sorry, um, I know that was long. <laughs> no, I think you made a really, really solid point. And it, like, I feel like the easiest example right now is kind of like the trans movement. You know, like it's if you don't bow then the like social punishment is becoming so intense. So now everyone is on board, every company, like just everything everywhere is about the trans movement. And it's uh, a very, very small percentage of people that are actually affected in any way. So like, but it, it is, it's like the, the grifter class, like they are now, that movement is kind of like, the, the priests at this point like mm -hmm. if i mean people will get fired i mean in the next year or so like with the way they're trying to pass laws and add uh gender identity to the civil rights act and stuff like it's literally like people are going to start getting fired if they have the audacity to say anything negative in the workplace ever like it's i mean it really does feel like we live in 1984 all like all at once, you you have to you have to say what you're supposed to say, or face I mean true consequences, losing your job. There's and, incantations and sacrifices yeah. you're expected to make to the priests, and if you don't, right, right, like I mean, it's like we we 
there are people that still claim we have freedom of speech, but it's gone. I mean, you just have to do, you're right. You have to make your sacrifices and then they'll, you'll be allowed to exist for another day. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's a, it's, it's definitely, it's, <laughs> I don't even know what to say. It's just like, we live in a really weird time through from, like, I mean, not just like recent history, just the history of the earth, right? Right now it's a very strange time where it's almost as if like the, like the more people that claim to be extremely oppressed are wielding the most power over society. Or who claim to speak for the oppressed. Cause I don't think yes. it's always them either. No, no. Right? It's like a, the movement. Yeah. Right. 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 Very interesting. I don't know. I don't think Ibram X. Kendi is actually <laughs> oppressed in any way. Measurable, oh, no. For example. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it makes me think, because you said the grifter class, it makes me think about uh, actually Barack Obama um, from the sense that you said, you know, we don't have like the, the strong man, you know, dictator that doesn't really go well, but you can behave like one uh, as long as you do it in a smooth way, um, as long mm -hmm. as you give a peaceful message along the way as to why you have to commit an atrocity or explain away the atrocity isn't really happening. Um, and so it makes me think of Barack Obama, you know, blowing up kids and, and you know, increasing war conflict, um, even though when he was running for office, he said, you know, no more stupid wars, we need to get out of this stuff, you know, the paraphrase, um, and then got into more and increased it. Mm -hmm. Yet at the same time, he won the Nobel Peace Prize and as he's walking out of the office, people say his biggest scandal was that he wore a tan suit. And it's like, it's because he, he had a way to hypnotize people, so to speak. This was more mm -hmm. than like, to me, it was more than just like being tribal. Oh, he's a Democrat. I'm a Democrat. So I'm going to excuse certain things. But I, I think there is just a willful overlooking uh, justification like he won these people over. No matter what you say, I you cannot make Barack Obama look like a bad person to me. I don't I don't care what you say. Um, he blew up kids. Well, he wasn't the one who was flying the drone. Someone did. Well, he gave the order. Well, he was pressured into giving the order. Like world in Las Vegas. That's who. Right. So I mean, they'll do everything to rationalize or just completely ignore a heinous act. So yeah, we we don't have an overt Genghis Khan figure. Uh, so to speak, ruling the world, but you don't need to. Now you can have other people do your dirty work while giving a message of peace along the way. You know, we're here to give democracy to people as they're blowing them up. <laughs> yep. You know, that kind yep. of thing. Or, um, or my favorite actually is in one country we're fighting ISIS, and then in another country we're giving money to ISIS. <laughs> <Funny. Yep. laughs> That's my favorite. So yeah, yeah, I I agree with what you're saying though. Yeah, he's he's an interesting one because as as uh, I think it was Mo here in chat points out, he's the first president to not be mocked by late night hosts. He was an amazing orator, not in the sense of I when I say orator, I mean in the in the way that Socrates would have said he's amazing. Like he was an amazing manipulator of language mm -hmm. and deliverer of speeches. Uh, he didn't say anything profound ever, 
really that I can remember. Um, but he really was able to, I think I love, I think the word hypnotize you use. I love the word. He was able to hypnotize people. Mm -hmm. They love him. I think a lot of people that didn't like his politics still say they love him. Well, there's, there's partly a reason why, and I was talking to somebody about this not so long ago, his cadence. He spoke like a Southern Baptist preacher. Mm -hmm. When he had a big speech, oh. that was what he would do. You know, today is our time. We must. Yep. Like, who does he sound like? <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> you know, MLK, Barack Obama. He had the same exact Southern Baptist preacher cadence. And people love that. Like, that, there's something about it that sounds like God is speaking through him. Even though he's talking about, he's not, you know, he's not talking about God. He's talking about policy. Or he's just talking in a vague generality. We need to do more and uplift people, you know. Um, without giving any specifics, and it just sounds, you know, all inspiring when he says it. Um, but when he's having a press conference, you know, he's, uh, you know, uh, I really think, uh, you know, he's 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 not very charming. But you know, he was able to. I I see it like he was able to be smooth enough, right? When generally speaking, we've had presidents who are kind of either bumbling. Uh, not very smooth, kind of crass, uh, older. I think all those things kind of come into play. He was kind of like the young, cool, you know, appearing. Uh, let's see what he's about. You know, uh, was a junior senator. And he was able to kind of get away with stuff like that. But definitely the cadence. The cadence made people like, oh, I love this. I, I love hearing this. You know what's scary is I, I think about sometimes how much let's rewind 300 years and think about the state of technology. Mm -hmm. uh, we had the printing press, but, you know, we didn't have radio. <laughs> right. Uh, I think how much technology has evolved. And obviously, there's a lot of great things with this conversation and lot, lots of great things can happen because technology has evolved. But. We haven't evolved in our <laughs> social <laughs> evaluations of people. Mm -hmm. And so I like, do you think someone like Obama would have been elected if you had to read about his position? If he had to write his speeches out and you read them in the paper and you read the other guys, no matter who it was, like, would he win? No. No, I don't Does think he would have won. I mean, a lot of politicians wouldn't have ever yeah. been elected if you actually had to read. And they couldn't, I mean, a lot of them are charismatic people. And if they couldn't, that doesn't translate into text, black and white text at all. So, yeah, a lot of them are getting by on just the fact that people are drawn to them. Yep. Yep. Yeah, that's, that's the popularity uh, contest aspect mm -hmm. of it. You know, the, the cult of personality. Um, which is, has existed in my entire life. There's been some sort of cult of personality. Um, but yeah, yeah, there's really, if you have, if you force them to say, like, uh, I want to bring back jobs, they're like, how? Just ask how. Right. <laughs> and they're like, oh, well, Investing we're going to, yeah, we're going to have a robust economy. <laughs> well, how are you, you going to have a robust economy? Like, what are you going to do? I'm going to speak to my advisors. Oh, so other people are going to tell you exactly how to stuff. You know, so. Right, yeah. 
Um, I think for me, I there's there aren't too many politicians where I'm just kind of like I, I believe or or think that they know most of what they're trying to do. I think they all I, I hate the, the phrase talking points, but they have general talking points or a general philosophy. Um, but maybe they're in some ways leaders who are willing to stick their neck out a little bit. That's to me that that's mostly what I'm looking for. Someone who's willing to kind of stick their neck out and say like, despite, you know, as a Republican president, despite half the Republicans not liking this, I'm going to do it anyways. Right. That kind of thing. I think that's why people like Trump, for example, that Trump was willing to say F this sometimes and just do it anyways, even if his own party didn't like it. Um, but yeah, I think that's what I, I mostly look for. Yeah. I think, I think the technology is a tool that the, that, that first estate, those manipulators have mastered. Right. And, and we, I'll, I say the third, I mean, I mean the people, we haven't really figured out how to use technology to see through manipulation so much as we've let it manipulate us. And so they've become much more powerful. Uh, you know, where in the past, maybe, maybe Obama could have been a local pastor and manipulated yeah. his town and been very popular. Now mm -hmm. he can do, he can get the whole, he can get the whole nation and and even you could say the whole western world uh behind him because he was so right. because he was so powerful or because he was so good good at that um okay. i want to ask you guys a question before we leave gene ellis yeah. wants us to talk about di national digital national currency do you guys i certainly have lots of opinions but i will shut up and let you guys uh, just i'll throw that phrase out there go <laughs> Okay. Um, I personally can't think of anything scarier than a totally digital system because you can't bury it in your backyard. Um, you can't take it all out of a bank that's about to fail. Uh, you know, like it's just, and then if it's all digital, there's a trail for everything you do with it. So if you, Say nobody knows that you're an alcoholic and you drink a bottle a night or whatever. Like the government will now know that because they'll see that you go to liquor stores every single day and then they can pass that information on to your insurance company or your employer or whoever, like something like that. You know, like you're, it leads to absolutely no privacy in any of your purchases, where you go, what you do. And it would, if it's all connected in a to a system where it can all be transferred and tracked in real time they'll know everything about you and that to me is pretty scary um ditto uh <laughs> no i thought um, was gonna say i love <laughs> central bank digital currency <laughs> um yeah i i would say i i agree with that as well um I think the part I would add is uh, I haven't really thought too much about this because I really just hope that this is not really a thing that's going to happen. But it to me, it sounds a lot like the beginning steps of the social credit score. Um, mm -hmm. And that's not a far-fetched thing to say because we know a, a major country that has a social credit score. 
Um, we look at people who are dealing with being canceled, right? And that's with private industry. Um, who's to say that the people who are like us, who are questioning narratives and saying the wrong thing, uh, one day they say, uh, you know, you're, you're locked out. You can't participate. Yep. Um, you know, so I, I, I definitely don't think it's a good idea. <laughs> I definitely, wait, did I say that? It was a double name. I don't think it's a good idea. Let's just put it like that. Um, and I really hope that that's not something that's going to come to fruition. Yeah. Well, I mean, I agree with both. So I, just so people who don't know what we're talking about, if you look it up, what you'll see is the, the phrase is central bank digital currency, and you'll see it abbreviated. Uh, CBDC is the abbreviation. Mm -hmm. um, I... I think it's an end game. I think it's the end game. I think it's, and I'm not trying to be hyperbolic. Uh, like I think it's, I think it's literally the end game. Um, because not only do they know everything about you, they can control your behavior, right? Like in the beginning of, we read for book club a while ago, we read Margaret Atwood's um, Handmaid's Tale. Mm -hmm. And in the beginning of the book, she goes to a store to buy, I think, cigarettes. And it, it wasn't central bank digital currency, but it was a digital currency. It was, it was central bank digital currency, but it wasn't the current technology, but the same functionality, right? Mm -hmm. She goes to buy cigarettes, and um, she can't. They say, oh, sorry, your account's been frozen. Um, you don't have access to your money anymore. And... Uh, no, I, I think of CBDC as, because people often call it a cryptocurrency. And here's the analogy I'll make. If cryptocurrency is like inventing a nuclear power plant that can cheaply and cleanly deliver electricity to an entire city's worth of people, central bank digital currency is a nuclear bomb. And... That's that's how similar the technologies are. Sure, there's some underlying similarities, but really, really, really different purposes. <laughs> like, <laughs> like crypto was designed to be decentralized. Like, yes, you can trace it, but it was designed to be, it's intended to be anonymous and decentralized and blah, blah, blah. Like, it's supposed to be out of state control. And central bank digital currency is the 180 degree opposite of that. It is entire control like Juliet said you can't bury it in your backyard um and you can't just like they can literally shut you down and like Adam said I, you know not only do they have social credit scores in China we have we've talked about it before there's there's uh ESG now e ESG is this um environmental social government governance score that is being pushed by the World Economic Forum but many Large corporations are adopting it as an example, BlackRock. Um, and let's just start with BlackRock because they can be at the top of the chain, right? Because they have so much money in under management, if they say, well, for our ESG score to be high, we only need to we can only do business with other people with good high ESG scores. That means if you want a loan or you want investment from them or you want some kind of financial transaction with them, they can say, Well, what's your ESG stuff? Give me what's your, show me your ESG. And that trickles down all the way to some dude selling donuts at a donut shop 
who needs the bank to give him a line of credit or needs to buy a machine from so-and-so or needs a payroll company to do blah, blah, blah. And like, they will start asking, well, what's your ESG score? Even there's uh one, there's only, I think I mentioned this the other day, there's two major ammunition manufacturers in the, in the United States. Like most of the ammunition that you buy, uh, it's a bunch of brands. Um, but, uh, I think it's Vista outdoor and Olin are the two brands. Most of it, I think is Vista outdoor. Uh, go to their website. There's an ESG, like an ammunition company has got like, yeah, we have an ESG score. Why? <laughs> You'd think if anyone's going to be like, screw this, it's people making ammo, but no, it's not. Um, everyone is starting to, and the SEC has been talking about trying to push it on publicly traded companies and requiring, I mean, this is one of the, I think the Supreme Court ruling uh, might hamper this, but um, they've been trying to push this on, on companies need to start reporting their ESG uh, information. So the idea, like, Adam's not crazy for saying, like, social credit will come. Like, it's it's here in companies, and you better believe that it will trick, that it will, uh, via osmosis, get into the population generally. Right. And and you combine that with central bank digital currency and it, it is uh, it's really over. It's over. Yeah, I actually I think it was about two weeks ago. I just happened to see a commercial and I, I think it was Bank of America offers investments through Merrill Lynch. And you can use your like Bank of America app and it showed like the person smiling because they invested and their personal ESG score went up a little bit. And she's like, ooh. So like oh, it's coming. Okay, there you go. Like it's already apparently available in apps. So you can have your own ESG score based on the companies that you invest in. Like, are you investing in good ones or bad ones? Right. You know? Right. Oh my gosh, it's just it. It feels like it's happening so fast and it all sounds so crazy. Like if you try to talk to somebody who's totally blissfully unaware of all of this, they're like, okay, Alex Jones, like, yeah, they're going to control all our money and not going to be able to buy a car anymore, but it's real. Like they're, they're working on it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I say It'll be nice to meet all the people in chat in the gulag. So (laughs) (laughs) right. Yeah. Um, someone says your ESG score will be no different than having a credit score. Yeah. Um, that's true in one sense. I mean, in one sense, the credit score should reflect your ability to pay back. It doesn't always because there's other ways it can. But like in general, the credit score should be how how safe are you to loan to? Mm-hmm. OK, fine. But ESG, like if Adam says something wrong on Twitter, that doesn't make him more of a loan risk. But it will. (laughs) Right. It will. I'm used to it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Not that you would ever say anything wrong on Twitter. Um, Why not? You know, I'm sure. Shit. I'm sure. I'm not trying hard enough. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, listen, we've been going for almost two hours, so it's probably a good time to wrap up. Adam, remind people where they can find you, how they can follow your work, all that fun stuff. Uh, You can follow me on Twitter. Uh, I'm going to do my fake TikTok. You can follow me on Twitter <laughs> at, at wrong underscore speak. Is that a thing they do? They do this? Yeah. They're like, oh, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, if you uh, see me on I TikTok. You were, I thought was, it was only me. when you're referring to your pronouns, like, do, 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 do. 
Um, yeah, you can follow me on, on Twitter uh, at wrong underscore speak. I'm the most active on there. Uh, Instagram, same thing. Um, you can also go to wrongspeak.net uh, for articles written by different writers that we now have. Uh, we now have an editor. Um, was it four? Four writers now, four paid writers, um, and potentially more in the near future. So I'm trying to expand Wrong Speak. I'm currently reviewing a book to to publish under Wrong Speak as well. Uh, and um, yeah. Uh, oh, if anybody's going to be in in the Milwaukee, Madison, uh, Wisconsin area, uh, I'm going to be speaking for Turning Points Faith in Janesville. Uh, so have a look out for that. Um, but yeah, I think that's, that's basically it. And, uh, oh, one other thing, if you're interested in writing an article for wrong speak, feel free to contact me or go to the website and fill out the contact form and, uh, we'll discuss it. Awesome. Cool. Well, thanks for, thanks for showing up. Uh, and thanks for a great conversation. Uh, Juliet, remind people where they can find you. Um, you can find me right now on Gab, uh, truth seeker, eight, four, eight, seven. Awesome. <laughs> it got kicked off Twitter, so <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think it might that might affect your personal ESG score. I get, maybe but we can have a conversation about that later. <laughs> also, uh, just I'll make an announcement now. We should we'll tell people Juliet. Juliet's hey. going to uh, be joining me every week from now on as a co-host. So um, if you like Juliet, you're happy. If you don't, tough <laughs> shit for you. She's gonna be here every week anyway. <laughs> So I'll uh, win them over. <laughs> yeah, she will win you over with her charm. Um, so thank you both for joining. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, we will we will see you see you next time. Thanks for sticking around until the end. If you're new to Unsafe Space check out our deep content library that includes discussions with everyone from James Lindsay to Brett Weinstein. And please consider helping to fund our work by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on a variety of social media platforms, and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space Discord server, which is open to financial supporters at any level. We hope to see you there. Warning, this is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production is known by the state of California to cause unregulated ideation that may be harmful to bureaucrats. Association with the following individuals, or tacos, is strictly prohibited. Apropos of nothing. I was just wondering how would you feel about another pandemic? Your president is in full control of his mental faculties. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, scientific, and scientifically are registered trademarks of the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited.
computer voice Curtis. Never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.